here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 88, in honor of the 88, Michael Jerome Irvin, my new teammate on Undisputed, and what a pleasure it has been to reconnect with the 88. We have had some conversations, have Michael Irvin and I. This, as always, is the Undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is Undisputed. Today, I will tell you why I believe with all my heart and soul that my Dallas Cowboys are still better than the Philadelphia Eagles and that my Cowboys are still going to this year's Super Bowl and not as guests. I will also tell you why my other new teammate, Richard Sherman, and I had a generation gap clash over Roger Staubach. I'll go into detail in just a moment. I will once again correct more revisionist history concerning an incident I was involved in way back in 2012 on First Take on ESPN. I'm sorry, I just can't help myself anymore. I will correct it. I will, as always, answer several of your probing, provocative questions, including one regarding Antonio Pierce and the Raiders. Go, AP, go. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I start with one of your questions. Rudy from Montana asks, Since when do you care about moral victories with your Cowboys? You know what, Rudy? You got me on this. You are correct. No moral victories. Yet this week on Undisputed, I never used the phrase moral victory pertaining to what happened at Philadelphia last Sunday. I never said those two words together, moral victory. I did say, that my biggest takeaway from Dallas at Philadelphia was the Cowboys are just better than the Eagles. But that was all about eye tests. That was all about gut feeling. That was all about instinct. Maybe I was a prisoner of the fourth quarter alone and what a fourth quarter it was for my Dallas Cowboys. My Cowboys dominated the fourth quarter in ways you will rarely see one team, one good team, dominate another good team at that good team stadium in front of that crazed crowd in a fairly close football game. Just for posterity, I'm going to hit these stats, these fourth quarter stats, one last time because I have never in my lengthy career seen anything like this. My Dallas Cowboys, in the fourth quarter alone at Philadelphia last Sunday, rang up 163 total yards to a grand total of 14 for the home team. 163 to 14. In passing yards alone, it was 151 to 3 Cowboys over Eagles. 151 passing yards to 3 for the Eagles. First downs, my Cowboys piled up 14 fourth quarter first downs. Think about that. 14 first downs just in the fourth quarter to 0 for the Eagles. 14 to 0. And as you know, despite all those opportunities, we managed to cash in for only one touchdown, six points. And you know what happened on that fateful two-point try by my quarterback, Dak Prescott. He bolted right. He had a lane. I thought he was going to score easily. 
And at the last second, he flinched. Maybe it's because of his career-threatening injury that he suffered a couple of years back. Other injuries he suffered. Maybe he's wised up. But this was for the game. And Dak stuck his toe across the out-of-bounds line. Out-of-bounds. He hit the pylon. I thought for a moment he had scored until I saw the first replay. And he stepped out of bounds. That cost us the two points that would have made it a three-point game late and easily put us in position to kick the field goal to take it to overtime instead of having to score the touchdown to win the game. But I'm going to say this again, and I said it again and again and again and again and again and again and again on Undisputed. The Eagles' defense is gettable. It is torchable. It is beatable. Up and down the field we went against the Eagles' defense. We'd done it last year on Undisputed. Keyshawn Johnson always says, ancient history. No, it's not ancient. It was just last Christmas Eve. This one at Jerry World. We hung 40 points on the Eagles' defense. Yeah, Keyshawn says, but they had clinched. Well, sort of, but still a lot of pride on the line. It's a division clash. 40 points. I know Jalen Hurts did not play for the Eagles, but he does not play safety. Gardner Minshew started for the Eagles, and he's pretty good. He's pretty good as we speak. He actually did some things to the Dallas defense that shook me. Just as Jalen did some things to the Dallas defense the other night that shook me. But Dak did hang 40 on the Eagles last year, and he was in position to hang 30 on them at Philadelphia this year, if not 32, if not, for that matter, 39, again and again and again in the fourth quarter. By the way, this is my stat sheet that I scribbled and cobbled together off this classic matchup at Philly. For those watching, I don't know if you can see this, but this is my all-timer. I think I'll, I'll keep this for posterity. I have scribbled this poor sheet of paper to death with notes about what happened and didn't happen in this game. Remember, there were three fumbles committed by the Eagles that the Eagles recovered. Three times the ball hit the turf loose and fortuitously, luckily, bounced right back to Eagles all three times. So I've always said we'll go as far as the defense takes us this year. We take the ball away. That's what we do the best. And we took it away none. Recovery, recovery, and one more recovery late in the game after they blew up a play in which DeAndre Swift ran straight into A.J. Brown and fumbled in a rookie backup tackle from Alabama. Luckily fell on said fumble. Call after call after call went against the Cowboys. But even so, even still, I'm looking at all these numbers and I'm looking at fourth quarter alone. We go 71 yards and 13 plays all the way to fourth and goal at the one. Why do we throw it to the rookie tight end from Michigan instead of to CD or toss it to Tony Pollard? or at least throw it to the more veteran tight end, Jake Ferguson. I know everybody is fixated on, focused on the fact that Brandon Cooks ran the same little slant on the opposite side and was wide open. Play was was called for Luke Schoonmaker out of Michigan. I don't get it. He caught it. He just couldn't get his knee down. in time for the ball to 
break the plane. It was very, very close, but we came away with zero points. Then we had it first and 10 all the way down at the Eagles 31 yard line, and we came away with zero points. Then we had it, as I've talked and talked about on Undisputed, first and five at the Eagles six with 27 seconds left. First and five at the Eagles six yard line with 27 seconds left. No timeouts, but no problem. And we go false start by a player named Tyler Smith, who he, he could be a Hall of Famer someday. Drafted out of Tulsa, first round pick by the Cowboys, in spite of the fact that he led all of college football his final year at Tulsa in penalties. Most of those were of the personal foul variety, some holdings. I don't know how many false starts were included, but he's a mistake maker. He's also a block maker. He is really good. But it was predictable he would be the one to false start on first and five from the six. And all of a sudden, you're back to first and 10 from the 11. And Dak drops back and gets sacked. Maybe that was his right tackle's fault, Terrence Steele's fault. He got beaten once again by Hassan Reddick but it's to the eye side. It's not the blind side. Dak just has to eat it and get rid of the football. I mean, just swallow the play, forget the play, live to fight another play. You can't take an 11-yard sack there. You just can't. You've still got time. If you see it flash on your eye side, you just throw the ball away. Throw it into the third row. Just, just get rid of the football. Don't worry about it. You, you've still got time. You've still got downs. So now it's second and 21. Incomplete to Jalen Tolbert. What, why are we throwing to Jalen Tolbert? He's caught the fewest balls of any Cowboy receiver all year. Second year player, obviously. Former third round pick. I don't know. Why are you throwing it to him? You threw it to him. At the end of the previous drive I talked about, when it got to fourth and eight at the 20, you threw it to Jalen Tolbert. I don't get it. C.D. Lamb caught 11 balls for 191 yards. You have to feature him. You have to give him a jump ball chance to win the game. So now it's third and 21, and they take a delay of game. How do you take a delay at that point? That's on the head coach play caller, Mike McQuandry, as I call him. That's on him. And all of a sudden, it's third and 26 from the 27. How do you go from first and five at the six to third and 26 at the 27? If you tried to do it, it would be hard to do it, to go that far in reverse. I don't understand the final play call. Okay, so you're going to hit CD at the five-yard line with like 29 Eagles camped in the end zone? Where do you think he's going to go? He's going to run through how many Eagles? Five of them? He catches it, flattens. Three of them tackle him, and he fumbles to end the game fittingly. Okay, so what were my concerns? Obviously, Jalen Hurts drove the Eagles his first possession touchdown. Obviously, he got a big break because our rookie kicker kicked it out of bounds on a kickoff, and he got to start at the 40, and he drove it down our throats for another touchdown to get them to 14. And then in the third quarter, he came out when everybody thought he might not come out at all after he'd taken a shot to his knee, his injured knee. From D-Law laying down the law. I thought a flag should have been thrown on that play against my team. It was the kind of hit that knocked Tom Brady out for a whole season. But Jalen came back, and he came back angry, and he threw two touchdown passes in the third quarter on my defense. We'll go as far as our defense takes us, and it allowed Philly to take it all the way to 28 points. It's just too many. I didn't love it, but I knew our offense could move the ball up and down the field on the Eagle defense. 
gettable, torchable, combustible, beatable. So I'm going to give you this. Is Jalen Hurts a little better playmaker than Dak Prescott? I will give you that. I've always been a Jalen fan since he played for stinking Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. I just knew he was made of the strongest stuff you can be made of. His football backbone is today unmatched at the quarterback position in my eyes, just as far as football guts go, playmaking guts. Lamar's in there somewhere. Mahomes is certainly in there. Burrow is in there, but I'll I'll take Jalen over all three. And by the way, I do think Jalen should be the sort of mid-season, if you will, MVP. He's a playmaker. He's got guts. Hall of Fame type guts. MVP type guts. If you gave Jalen Hurts the ball in a similar situation, let's say at Dallas, first and five from the six-yard line with 27 seconds left needing to score a touchdown, I believe Jalen would he would just figure it out. Well, with that team, they just run three straight quarterback sneaks, tush pushes, brotherly shoves. And that's all about Jalen. That's not about getting pushed in the tush. It's just about Jalen's leg strength, his will. You could just run three straight quarterback sneaks, if not one, and get it in the end zone. My biggest problem with Dak Prescott is he's really good except when you need that one play, that one play. I needed one play here somewhere, just just one play. I, I detailed to you, 14 first downs to zero for the Eagles, fourth quarter. One play, you got a big chance, you got a pretty good chance, you got a great chance. One, two, three. One time you did get it in the end zone, and then you couldn't get it in the end zone on the two-point try. One play, just one play, Dak. I need one. And we win the game, and we become the talk of the NFL because we have arrived. We beat a good team on the road, maybe a great team. Last year's Super Bowl representative of the NFC. Seven and one going into the game, but now unfortunately they're eight and one. I just needed one play, and I'm going to say it again about Dak Prescott. I'm grading him unfairly because I'm a spoiled, rotten Dallas Cowboy fan since I was 10 years old. I experienced Dandy Don Meredith. He was really good. They were sort of next year's champion through those years, but they were really good. They kept getting to the edge of championships and couldn't quite get over that last hump. He's really good. And then Roger Staubach took them home. Four Super Bowls he played in, lost two to very possibly the greatest teams ever, the Steel Curtain Steeler teams. But he won two Super Bowls, did Roger Staubach. He changed life in Dallas. To me, he was the greatest Cowboy quarterback, even greater than Troy Aikman was. But you see, spoil, spoil, spoiled. Dandy Don, Roger the Dodger, and Troy. So I want Dak to live up. This is America's team. These are the Dallas freaking Cowboys, the most valuable team on the planet. My quarterback has to live up to that, or I don't want him anymore. I told you, I'm, I'm done with him as being the reason to get us home to get us back to even an NFC championship game. I I need the defense to lift him up that last notch, lift him up onto that pedestal occupied by those three before him. Do I trust him in these moments? I, I can't. Do I trust him to throw a party in the fourth quarter in Philadelphia? I do. Again, 151 passing yards by Dak Prescott just in the fourth quarter alone, but only six points. 
I just needed one play. But the point is, to answer your question, Rudy from Montana, I didn't need a moral victory. I didn't sell it on Undisputed as a moral victory. We're just better than Philadelphia, but we weren't Sunday. We did everything but win on Sunday at Philadelphia, but we didn't win. We're five and three, they're eight and one. But I can't wait for December 10th at Dallas. I can't wait to see what's about to happen to my team and their team. I'll leave you with this on this topic, Rudy. We are 11-0 and in our last 11 games at home. We've won 11 straight home games. And we have four of the next five at home. We have the Giants. I think we got that. We go to Carolina is the lone away game in the next five. I think we got that. We have Washington on Thanksgiving. They can score, but we can score just as well, if not better. And we've got a much better defense. We'll win that game. We have Seattle at home on a Thursday night, the following Thursday. We're going to win that game, and we're going to beat Philadelphia on December 10th. That means we will win five straight while Philly has to navigate this gauntlet. They go to Kansas City. They host Buffalo. Then the 49ers visit Philadelphia for a rematch of last year's NFC Championship game. Then it's at Dallas for Philadelphia. Then it's at Seattle, at Seattle for Philadelphia. I can see them losing four of their next five, those Eagles. Let's say that happens. Let's say we win five straight and they they lose four of five. And all of a sudden you look up and Dallas is 10 and three. And the Eagles are nine and five. Hmm. I don't need any moral victories. I need victories, and I'm about to have a bunch of them. Thank you very much for that, Rudy. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, save $30 on the American-made Steel FS56 RCE Trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Suffer me this. The other day on Undisputed, I was going back and forth with Richard Sherman about something. I believe it was about Dak. I think it was the very issue I just brought up to you about Dak that I was talking to Richard about. And I did mention Roger Staubach as the all-time greatest Cowboy quarterback. And one thing led to another. And Richard suggested live on air on national TV that those old quarterbacks like Roger Staubach are overrated, that in today's NFL, They couldn't live up to what the current quarterbacks are doing, the numbers they're putting up. And I finally had to stop Richard Cold and say, wait, are you saying that Roger Staubach was a fraudulent Hall of Famer? My man Keyshawn Johnson did have my back on this one. He usually does not. He usually sides with Richard. But he laughed out loud at Richard and said, Richard, you, you, you got to stop, man. You're, you're about to take it right over the cliff. But Richard wouldn't let it go, even off the air. Hit me in the next break with, he's looking up the stats, that Roger Staubach completed only 57% of his passes in his career. I said, Richard, you have no idea what you're talking about. You are barking up the wrong tree because this one is a redwood. 
but it dawned on me during that break that I was now caught in a classic generational debate, a, a classic continental divide of a generation gap. It's the same one that operates every time we do Jordan versus LeBron. Remember, Richard Sherman's only 35 years of age. He's still all about Mahomes, way over Roger Staubach. He's even about Mahomes, eventually over Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Even though Patrick still has five more Super Bowls to go to catch Tom. By the way, just to demonstrate that I'm not playing grumpy old man here, I'm not just being prisoner of my generation. I'll take Tom Brady over Roger Staubach any day or night. And I love Roger Staubach, but I love Brady more because he was better than Roger and Roger was all-time great. I can make a case Roger was a top five all-time quarterback. I also mentioned that when I was a kid growing up in Oklahoma City, my favorite baseball player was Mickey Mantle. My favorite pitcher was Bob Gibson because I was a big St. Louis Cardinal fan. I was not a Yankee fan, but Mickey Mantle was from my state of Oklahoma. He's from Commerce, Oklahoma, way up in the sort of northeast portion of the state. I later became good friends with Mickey Mantle. Was I ever blessed? But the point was, even though I never saw Babe Ruth play, I studied the stats when I was a little kid. I read at least two biographies of Babe Ruth. I absorbed his greatness from a distance. As I look back into the past, and it was just clear to me, he was greater than Mickey Mantle. And he just was. It has nothing to do with generational when I tell you that Michael Jordan was way better than LeBron James. Nothing to do with generational. It's just that he won 10 scoring titles to LeBron's one. As you know, he was 6-0 in finals with six finals MVPs. He even won a defensive player of the year, did Michael Jordan. He was the coldest-blooded basketball assassin you can imagine. While LeBron can actually be too nice of a guy. LeBron has had his moments of unclutchness. I don't believe LeBron was born with the clutch gene that Michael lived on. I'm sorry, all all this business about LeBron again and again makes the right play, quote-unquote, at the end of games. I'm not going to give him a pass for making those passes. He just doesn't trust himself at the late-game free throw line. No player in basketball has missed more late and close free throws since he came into the league than LeBron has. I don't think he trusts himself in the clutch from three or the free throw line. He'll pull up from three occasionally just to avoid the free throw line, but usually he's just going to try to create a situation that will allow him to make the quote-unquote right basketball play to let him off the hook. The other night, last Monday night at Miami, here we go again. Always seems to come down to LeBron with the ball in his hands. Down one. 108-107. At least he didn't pull up and take a three. He only needed a point to tie. And he drove right. He drove it almost to, to the baseline. Jimmy Butler was guarding him. He's bigger and stronger than Jimmy Butler is. Jimmy's a really good, savvy, hard-nosed defender, obviously. 
Bam was lurking. So all of a sudden, LeBron rises and jump passes across the lane all the way to the far corner to Cam Reddish, a new Laker, who, by the way, at that point was one for 12 from three so far as a Laker through the first six games. One for 12. You want Cam Reddish taking the last shot? I don't. I want LeBron taking the last shot because I know what Michael would have done in that situation, and I'm talking about Michael Jordan. He would have taken one hard dribble right. He would have gotten Jimmy leaning a little to his left, and Michael would have crossed over and hard dribbled him back onto his heels and then probably pulled up somewhere near the free throw line as he did that one night. I was there in the front row at Utah, Game 6, 1998 Finals. Michael would have pulled up and taken that shot. Would he have made it? I don't know. He missed some, but he made a whole lot more. I would have liked my chances with Michael shooting that shot because he was going to shoot that shot whether you liked it or not, whether his teammates liked it or not. I know there were finals games when he let Paxton shoot one and then he called a play for Steve Kerr in the huddle. Kicked it to Kerr for the last second shot. But he called that one. He did not call this Cam Reddish play. That just happened. Jordan's going to take that shot. LeBron, for the most part, is going to run from that shot. So, quickly back to Roger Staubach. He had the strongest winner's intangibles of any player I've ever been around this side of Michael Jeffrey Jordan. I had the pleasure, honor, blessing of covering them both and getting to know both. As I mentioned, Roger took hold of the reins in Dallas and changed life for a team that was perennially next year's champion. Roger was captain comeback. In my life, I've never seen a player who could stink for three quarters and then take over the fourth quarter and get the game home. Never seen anything like it before. He was in his first few years, Roger the Dodger, because he was the best running quarterback in pro football. Over his first two years as starter in Dallas, he averaged over eight yards a carry. He was the Heisman winner at Navy, but then he served his hitch in the Navy, served in Vietnam, fought in Vietnam, didn't get to the league until he was 27 years of age. Four times he led the NFL in passer rating. Three times he had the lowest interception rate in the NFL. One year he did lead in touchdown passes, even though that was as balanced an offense under Tom Landry as you could get. Roger Staubach went 11-6 and six in the playoffs. 11-6, and 2-2 two and two in the Super Bowls, as I mentioned. Dak Prescott is 2-4 and four in the postseason and has never played in so much as an NFC championship game. Roger Staubach created the Hail Mary. December 28, 1975, he threw it to another great 88 who is as clutch as they come, Drew Pearson, undrafted out of Tulsa. And after the game, Roger said, I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. And that passed to Drew. He got away with a little push-off, a la Jordan in Game 6 at Utah in 1998. Got away with a little push-off, but that pass and touchdown became known as the Hail Mary. And subsequently, as we know, any desperation pass at the end of games, it's called a Hail Mary. That's all because of Roger Staubach. 
This is from Gregory from New Jersey who asks, do you still keep all your clocks on East Coast time? We do. We just had to switch them all. Obviously, daylight savings time kicked in. I'm going on eight years of living on East Coast time on the West Coast in Los Angeles. I do it because for the previous 16 years at ESPN, I got up every day at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock seems like the start of the day to me. Here, I get up at 2 a.m. Because I have to. Our st- Obviously, our show starts a half hour earlier than First Take does. So I'm actually a half hour behind when I wake up at 2 a.m. There's no way I'm going to wake up at 1.30 because that's just unholy to me. 2 a.m., I trick myself into believing, oh, they're all up in the east at 5, so I got to jump out of bed and here we go. I'm just here to tell you that even though I'm going on eight years, Your body never, ever gets used to getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Ever, ever. Not ever, ever. In fact, if anything, it gets a little worse by the week. It wears on me. I hate it. For much of my career as a newspaper columnist, I was a night owl. I worked late at night. I stayed up very late. I slept and got up. 9 or 10 in the morning. And now I get up at 2 a.m. Unholy. It's a severe price to pay for a show that I love to do. Undisputed is the most fun I've ever had in my career. So I just continue to trick myself into saying it'll be okay. This is JC from Iowa. What does your grocery and shopping list look like each week? Well, it's pretty short on both counts because I have settled in with having all of my meals made by a chef, not a live-in chef, but we have a chef make and then deliver the meals once a week a lunch and a dinner for every day. I have some salmon. I have some turkey. I have a little chicken. Side dishes are broccoli, a little spinach occasionally, and always a little rice. I live on those meals for the most part, but we order from Amazon on a weekly basis. Protein shakes. I bring one in, as I've said, Every morning here to Fox, to the Fox lot, to my dressing room, it's my breakfast, muscle milk, 40 grams of protein. I tend to live on protein bars, Quest bars, Bear Bells bars, Nature Valley bars, peanut butter flavor. So we order those from Amazon as we do Diet Dew, the breakfast of champions, the nectar of the gods. I have one a day, and we order them from Amazon. All of this I know is pretty boring, but I do not apologize because I must tell you, I really like what I eat and what I drink. This is Hal from New Orleans. How impressed were you with Antonio Pierce and the Raiders after less than one week on the job? Well, obviously, extremely but I'm biased. In my days on first take, I worked closely with Antonio Pierce. He was an analyst who came in often during football season on first take. Knew the game inside and out. In those days, he was coaching high school football, eventually became the head coach at a powerhouse school out here with a great tradition called Long Beach Poly. So 
So he had some head coaching experience before he went with Coach Herm to Arizona State to be defensive coordinator. Antonio Pierce really knows football. There's no showmanship in his game on television. He was a hardcore analyst with deep conviction about what he believed. Antonio Pierce is a natural-born leader. He's also a natural-born raider, having grown up out here in Compton, straight out of Compton, during the days of the L.A. Raiders, born to be a head coach of the once Oakland Raiders, the L.A. Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders. My pet peeve about the hiring of NFL head coaches is that being a coordinator in college or pro football does not qualify you in any way, shape, or form to be the general, to be the commanding officer, to be the CEO of a franchise in no way, shape, or form. I've known so many assistants, so many assistants, good guys great coordinators, great play callers on offense and or defense. Couldn't run the show, not natural born leaders. I won't name names, but you you know them. They come and they go. Owners fall right into the trap of, oh, he's the hot coordinator. No, he was calling plays for Tom Brady. His name's Josh McDaniels. Oh, he's calling Brady. Oh, he's calling for Tom Brady. How many Brady products got jobs in this league and then failed? Josh McDaniels got two jobs in this league and failed miserably in Denver and then Las Vegas. Look, you you, you got to let this play out. I was a little taken aback that the Raiders were smoking victory cigars after their win the other day. But it shows you just how excited that team was to get out from under Josh McDaniels. It it shows you that there was such a huge sigh of relief in that locker room. They wanted to celebrate. Ding dong, the witch is dead. No more Josh McDaniels. Just a gut feeling from having been around, worked around, sort of lived around Antonio Pierce. He's a keeper. He's a leader. He's a difference maker who will rise above one side of the ball or the other side. He's a defensive coach who I think was born to be a head coach, especially of this franchise. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, What exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. 
That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. So I promised myself years ago I wouldn't respond to these things, and I kept letting them slide, shrugging, going on, going about my business. And lately, maybe thanks to doing this show, I finally said, no, no more. If it's wrong, say it's wrong. Don't shrug it off. Don't let it slide. So I'm reading a story the other day that my wife Ernestine sent to me just because she wanted me to know. She gets all these Google alerts, and mostly I don't hear about these things. But she said no, because she knows Jay Crawford, with whom I worked at ESPN for eight years. She loves Jay. I love Jay. Jay did a podcast with Awful Announcing. They wrote a story about said podcast. And Jay said a lot of nice things about me, which I deeply appreciate because that is reciprocal. He's a great human being and very good on television and did not a good job. He did a great job of moderating what we used to call first and 10 in the early days of our debate on cold pizza, which segued up to Bristol to first take, which was still cold pizza disguised as first take. And Jay goes into an incident that occurred and involved my high school basketball career. You might remember this. I'm going to make sure I don't miss any quotes here before I go into the details of this. But it involved my old friend Jalen Rose. And Jay Crawford does conclude that first take in those days, this is 2012. Jay says, the show was taken to heights we had never reached, and Skip was the guy who took us there. And I appreciate that very deeply from Jay Crawford. And yet, Jay says that because of this incident, that I wanted Jalen Rose banned from first take, which is not remotely true. I'll get to that in just a moment. But Jay does finally conclude in this article that I read, the Skip Bayless you see on TV is completely different than the Skip Bayless you see in real life. Quiet, kind, thoughtful, considerate, a good guy, a really good guy. I thank you for that, Jay. I don't think I'm different at all. Maybe we just didn't know each other that well. But trust me on this, the Skip you see on TV, I don't like to go third person on myself, but the guy you see on TV is very real. It's very me. Maybe I don't show it off camera as much out outside my home, but trust me, my wife would tell you, oh, that, that guy on TV is, he's the real deal. That's him. So quick backstory. Again, allow me this, suffer me this. What came into question was my high school basketball career. Nobody cares about my high school basketball career except for these circumstances as to why it came up. So quickly remember my background. I was the oldest of three children in a broken home. Two alcoholic parents, father never around, father had zero use for sports. Nobody in my family had any use for sports. Yet right away, for reasons I can't explain, I found that I was really good at sports. Number one, especially good at baseball, but number two, also at basketball, which weirdly was my first love, and I don't know exactly why. I just loved playing basketball more than I did baseball, even though I was much better at baseball and did much better in high school at baseball. 
I lettered in baseball when I was a sophomore at Northwest Glasson High School, biggest high school in the state of Oklahoma. It's hard to letter when you're a sophomore there, just hard. But I did, and then by the time I was a junior, I started every game my junior and senior year, obviously, mostly at shortstop my junior year. I was a catcher by trade. I was a catcher all the way up because I could throw, so I played catcher my senior year. But in basketball, I was actually explosively good in eighth and ninth grade. In eighth grade, I've mentioned this before, but you can look it up or ask somebody about it. Taft Junior High School probably had 1,500 kids. It was a huge junior high school, only two grades, seventh and eighth. I was chosen athlete of the year in eighth grade at Taft, mostly because of, if not all, because of basketball. I had an eighth grade basketball coach named Jay Stevens who just loved me and he he just believed in my talent. So he kept me after school every day, starting the first day of school in eighth grade to shoot three-point shots when there was no three-point line. Don't ask me why, but I would stand for an hour at a time and he would rebound for me and I would shoot threes and shoot threes and just bomb them. There's no three-point line. But he thought I could shoot and thought it would work, and so that's what he wanted me to do, run and launch, and that's what we did all our eighth-grade year. I wound up the last game at a school called John Marshall, which I'll get right back to in just a second. I scored 21 in our final game, eighth grade, at John Marshall. I went to a a summer camp soon after my eighth-grade year, before ninth grade, in Oklahoma City, but kids came from all over Oklahoma and Texas for that camp. And I was voted MVP. I still have the story. I've used it in a story that I wrote called Here I Am for our website here at Fox, Fox Sports. And then it happened. I was still pretty good in ninth grade. In fact, we had an AAU team independent of school. I think I was the leading scorer, but we had some really good kids. All of them played Division I basketball or football. We did make it to the state finals, and we lost. But then came 10th grade, and then came a legendary coach at my high school, Northwest Classen. By the way, my 10th grade year, they won another state championship, so he had two. His name was Don Van Poole. I don't know why, but he just did not like me. I think he liked me okay as a kid, but he did not like my game. I was run and pump. He wanted me to be a point guard to distribute, and I had no capability. I was strictly a shooter, not a passer. I had no capacity for passing. I couldn't see it and pass it before it happened. I had zero LeBron in me. And right away, he demoted me and demoted me and demoted me some more. He destroyed my confidence. Yet, I I didn't even think twice about it because those are the days when Whatever the coach said, you shut up and you did. If he told you you were bad, you were bad. If I'd had a dad or a big brother, I think I would have thought differently because I think I would have started challenging the legendary coach. I think I would have taken a stand against him, but I did not. So I muddled and struggled through my sophomore and junior years going nowhere. But by the time we got to senior year, I was convinced, I was just sure I was going to start for a team that was loaded. We had three Division I scholarship players that year. Two had just left the previous year and went to Kansas State on scholarship. Steve Mitchell, the great Steve Mitchell and John Cheatham. It's a loaded program. We were always one or two in the state. So obviously Don Van Poole did not need me. But I was pretty sure I was going to start. And then it happened. 
he had brought in his son, aptly named Donnie Van Poole. And when we got to game number one, Don Van Poole announced that Donnie was going to start clearly ahead of me. I was devastated. I was disillusioned. I lost more confidence. He used me as a sixth man for defensive purposes, but he made it clear to me if I shot and missed, I would be sitting over by him in a heartbeat. I did start three games that year. I verified this with my teammates, one at home, two in holiday tournaments that we played away. I started because he was down on Donnie for some reason. I don't know. I was a better defender than Donnie, but I was the designated defender. I had one good game my whole senior year. It was at home just before Christmas against Daryl Porter's Southeast Spartans. You might remember Daryl Porter if you're a hardcore baseball fan because he was the World Series MVP. He was the fourth pick in the draft by the Brewers originally. He wound up with the Kansas City Royals, then the St. Louis Cardinals. Had a rough life, had cocaine issues, died of a cocaine overdose, but he was a great player. And I had one good game against him. He was the leading scorer in our conference easily in basketball. He's also a great football player, a great high school quarterback. But I took him for most of the game with lots of help, but I took him. We just played straight up help man. And if memory serves, and I might not have this exactly right because I don't have this box score. I'm sure somebody could find it, but I'm pretty sure Daryl scored only five points that night at our place while I scored five points for us. So I equaled Daryl Porter, and that was kind of the height of my basketball career. We did go on to the state finals and lose. I played decreasingly down the stretch. I wound up more and more in the doghouse because I was not needed. So it came in the early days of Twitter. Back in those days, I forget how many, what the character limit was, but you could get like three little sentences in. I was tweeting about Russell Westbrook struggling to become a point guard when he was more of a scorer. And I mentioned that I had also struggled and failed to become a point guard in high school and that I did play for a a team. I'm sorry, I did start for a team that lost in the state finals. Well, I didn't, didn't have enough room to explain that I only started three times, but, but obviously my pride's a little on the line there, but I, I did start for them. I did start three games, but that was all the space that we had. So some website picked up on it and went back to find that I averaged 1.4 points a game. I, I knew this full well because I was the sports editor of the yearbook out of which they found that because I put that in. I put our stats in for my senior year's yearbook. When I first saw those stats, I was actually shocked that I averaged 1.4 because I played so many bits and pieces in games in which I didn't shoot a lick. I mean, I never tried one shot that I couldn't even imagine how I averaged 1.4. But the point was that before the next day's show, we did have a new showrunner, a great friend of mine, champion of mine named Jamie Horowitz. And he and I discussed before the next day's show, should I respond about the 1.4 points? I said, I'd be happy to. And he said, "Ah, it's not that big a deal. Nobody cares, which they don't. Jamie said, just leave it alone. So I'm out on national TV, and Jalen Rose was in that day to be one of my debate partners. And right out of the box, he confronts me on air with 1.4 points. Also in the tweet, I forgot to add, I mentioned that once upon a time, before I tried to become a point guard, I thought I was... Pistol Pete Maravich, because he was my hero. He was the back in my eighth and ninth grade days. He was it. And I thought, well, I'm I'm the next Pistol Pete. Did I ever get that wrong? So Jalen starts calling me on air Water Pistol Pete, which is funny and true. I, I ended up in high school being Water Pistol Pete. But I couldn't respond the way I usually do because I told our showrunner Jamie. 
I would not respond. So I was blindsided and caught off guard by it. And Jamie thought I did the right thing in just being pretty tight-lipped and shrugging it off, and we moved along. But he said, why don't you sit down with Jalen? That was after the show. Talk through it with Jalen, and then maybe you guys can talk it out on air tomorrow. So I did sit down with Jalen. I told him my background in basketball. Seemed amenable to it, blah, blah, blah. We go back and forth, and we seem to have it all pretty much on the same page, and we agreed the next day we would talk through it. And right away on television the next day, which Jay Crawford does not point out in the awful announcing podcast, Jalen attacked me again. Water pistol beat. I thought it was a little bit of a low blow, but I just threw up my hands. It went nowhere. It went off the rails and gave it up. But trust me on this, in no way, shape, or form did I ever say Joe and Rose can never come back on first take. I did not care. Trust me on that. I never said a word. Maybe Jamie banned him from first take. I have no idea, but I never heard anything about that. And Jay says in this interview that somehow I banned him. Nope, I did not. I didn't care. And I remained friendly with Jalen. And we, I'm sure we had him on before. I mean, after that, because I'd had him on so many times before. So a couple of days later, the Oklahoman in my hometown of Oklahoma City did a story on the controversy and called some of my ex-teammates, one, my friendly rival from seventh grade on named Bruce Scott, who went to University of Oklahoma on a combination basketball golf scholarship, was All-State that year along with Ron Romborg on our team, first team All-Staters. But Bruce spoke to the Oklahoman and said, and I quote, that if I had transferred my senior year to a rival of ours, John Marshall, I would have averaged 18 points a game. And I'm sure I would have because in those days, the scores were usually in the 50s, maybe 60, but usually 50-ish. Could I have averaged 18 a game at John Marshall? Sure. I I would have been the best player on that team for sure. When we played Northwest Classen, the school I was at, if I'd gone to John Marshall, we, we would have gotten blown out by at least 20, if not 30 or 40. But I would have gotten my 18. So I did appreciate Bruce Scott just telling the truth that I was certainly good enough to average 18 for a school in our conference. And then I come full circle back to Roger Staubach, who, by the way, was All-State in basketball in Ohio at Moeller High School in Cincinnati. I've mentioned this before, but I'll conclude with it again. The year Roger retired from the Dallas Cowboys because of concussion syndrome at age 38. He played basketball many afternoons at a place called the Aerobic Center in Dallas. I also went there and also played a lot of basketball there. We were in a couple of five-on-five games on opposite sides. He came over after one of them and said to me, he was just trying to be a really nice guy because he's the nicest guy ever. He said, man, I... That's the hottest I've ever seen anybody. I appreciated that. A couple of weeks passed. One day, Roger and his friend were in the gym, and I was with Pat Toomey, who also had played for the Cowboys, went to my school, Vanderbilt, played freshman basketball there. Pat's 6'6", and Roger and his friend, they're both 6'2"-ish, said, let's play two-on-two. Okay, great. So Pat and I are picking and rolling because we know each other's games, and I am like crazy hot, and we just blow them out three straight games, and Roger was not happy. He was as crazy competitive as anyone I have ever been around, including Jordan. And he set up a, a rematch for that next Friday, and when I came for the rematch, he had closed the whole aerobic center area and court just for us. Had a couple of people from his office there to watch. And for his new teammate, Roger brought Cliff Harris, now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, 
a great safety for Rogers Dallas Cowboy teams, for all those Super Bowl teams. And Roger brought Cliff Harris to guard me. That's why he brought Cliff Harris. Cliff didn't really like me because I'd written some things Cliff did not love. So now I had a future Hall of Famer guarding me, a safety whose nickname was Crash Harris. And Roger and Cliff did beat us that day, beat us soundly that day. And I didn't care because, trust me, that was the highlight of my basketball life, the highlight of my basketball life. And that two-on-two game was something that I thought about all through that controversy those days at ESPN. And finally, this is from Oliver from New York, New York, who asks, would you ever wear a LeBron jersey on air again? I mentioned in last week's podcast in discussing Halloween that I had once upon a time at ESPN, I think it was 2007 or 8, not sure which one. I dressed up for Halloween on air as LeBron James. Back in his Cleveland days, I wore the headband. I wore the jersey. I actually took a real live brick into the studio and and acted like I was shooting a brick in honor of LeBrick James. I did that once upon a time. I will not do that again. I will never dress as LeBron for Halloween again. I did it once, and it will stand alone. So the only way I can imagine ever wearing a LeBron jersey on air is if I lose a bet. And I certainly don't plan on losing a bet this year concerning LeBron James because I picked his Lakers to win it all. So I will not be betting against myself. That's it for episode 88. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his All-Pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern time, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.